Well, great to see all of you here today. And again, I just want to welcome all of you joining us online. So glad you could be here. And hey, I'm excited to tell you about something. Before we go to our, our the word tonight, I'm excited to tell you about something that a lot of you already know about, but uh, not in the detail that you are going to know about it in the upcoming months. How many of you know that uh, God's put on our hearts to become a multi-site church? Okay, but those of you that may not know, God has opened the doors for us to become a multi-site church. And uh, back in 2019, God gave us 15 acres of great land right off the bypass. How many of you know that? All right, in case you don't know that, I'm here to tell you. We have 15 acres, and one day there's going to be another church sitting out there. So it's going to, New Life Christian Church is going to have uh, two campuses. We're going to have this campus, whatever we end up calling it. We're going to have the West Campus, which is out there. And how many of you live out there by the new West Campus property? Okay, I get asked on a weekly basis, how soon are we going to get that done? Well, guess what? I have some good news for you tonight. I want to let you know that today we are officially announcing that we are taking the next step towards realizing that dream, that vision. Today, we are introducing you to the official first day of what we are calling our Go West campaign. Go West campaign. So yeah, you can cheer for that for sure. Now, you're going to be hearing a whole lot about this over the next couple of months. This is going to take several months to go through, but I want you to see and understand that this is our first official step into the next phase of this vision, and uh, I'm excited to be telling you a lot more about it. Now, uh, as you know, that we've been going through this process for several years. God has been, been leading us every step of the way, and then even back in November, we had that worship prayer time out on the West Campus. You guys remember that? And there was, I don't know how many people there, quite a few, and we got to show you a picture of what the new building is going to look like, and we're going to be showing you a whole lot more than just that in the months ahead, but, but it's just so exciting. Now, I'm telling you this right now because all of you are going to receive in the mail this week a communication from the church. Now, we don't use mail a whole lot around here. We use email. We send a lot of notifications, and we text a lot, but you're going to actually receive something in the mailbox, and I'm telling you this so you can be watching for it. This is a really important piece of information information that we are sending to you. We want you to read it front and back and be familiar with it. It's going to answer some questions for you. And if for some reason you're thinking, well, I've moved since the last piece of mail I got from the church, or does the church have my mailing address? If you have any of those questions, feel free to email us here at the church or call the church office this week and just verify that we have the right email address. But we're going to send out a massive communication and you do not want to miss this. I hope you'll be waiting by your window watching the mailman. Bring this to your mailbox and you'll rush right out and get it. No, I'm, it, you don't have to rush right out and get it. But this week is coming and it's going to introduce you to our Go West campaign. That's all I'm going to say about it right now. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about it in the upcoming weeks and months. Let me, can we pray about it though? I just think we, as we start this, we need to bathe this thing in prayer. So God, I just come before you tonight. We do as your church. And Lord, we just ask for you to bless what we're about to get, be involved with. Lord, you... You have been guiding us all of this time. And Lord, we can look back over the last few years and we can point to specific things where we know that was God. He did this. That wasn't us. That was him. That was him making our way straight for us. So Lord, we can see all of these things. And Lord, we can't wait to celebrate them in the weeks and months ahead. But Lord, as we stand here on day one and we look out into the future, the not too different future, the future that will be here much quicker, than what we might even realize. Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, we ask you continue to guide. 
Lord, we ask you to continue to show us. Lord, help us to dream big dreams. Lord, we know it will come about because of you. So, Lord, be with our Go West campaign. Lord, may it be everything you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is Valentine's Day weekend, and I don't know if you're looking forward to it, but I can tell you, it's kind of a cold, icy, crummy, snowy Valentine's Day, isn't it? Uh, perhaps this Valentine's Day will be best remembered for the Valentine's Day where you stayed at home, snuggled up on the couch in front of the fire, or in front of a space heater, or in front of your, underneath your electric blanket. Whichever one you've got, this might be the Valentine's Day best remembered for that. That doesn't sound too bad to me, actually. You know, Cupid from classical mythology, it is the figure that's most associated with Valentine's Day. In mythology, Cupid is the son of the love goddess Venus and the god uh, of war named Mars. And while there are many variations of Cupid uh, passed down through multiple generations, through all kinds of different cultures, what's most understood is that Cupid is associated with, with uh, love and desire and attraction and affection. And tradition says that one shot from Cupid's arrow will cause you to burn with uncontrollable desire. Now, of course we know that's just a bunch of baloney. Raise your hand if you know that's a bunch of baloney. Of course we know that. But the remnants of polytheistic cultures have survived even down to us today. I would say that Cupid is probably best used and best known these days as an opportunity to sell Valentine's Day cards and Valentine's Day candy. That's pretty much Cupid's role these days anymore. But let me just tell you, if you want to talk about a God who is real, because that's what we talk about around here. You want to talk about a God who is real, not mythological, but a God who is real. Not a God who's made up out of fantasy, out of man's ideas, but a God who is real. A God who is the embodiment of true love. Then look no further than the God of the Bible. John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible, says this, For God so loved... A lot of all of God's actions, this whole verse, what it's about is born out of God's love. For God so loved the world. Now, he's not referring to this planet. He's not referring to the earth and the sky and the trees and all of those things, although I do believe God loves that very much. For God so loved the world, God so loved people that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the God of love right there. I hope that that's something that we remember a lot on this Valentine's Day. Where did love come from? What is love really about? It comes from God. Well, we are continuing our series called Grounded, and we are unpacking the essential doctrines or the essential core teachings of the Bible. It's those things that we're going to have unity on. There's really not any opinion involved here. This is what the Bible says. This is what it teaches. And this is what we receive, and this is what we believe, and this is what we practice. In the very first week, we talked about the doctrine of God, that God is the creator, that God has these incredible attributes that make him stand apart from all the other made-up gods in this world. You know, God is love, God is holy, and on and on. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of sin, 
and how sin is to break or violate God's law. It's missing the mark. It's coming up short. It's not doing what God wants you to do. It's all of those things. And sin has been an infection on this earth since day one. But you know what we're going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about the cure. The cure for sin. Which, of course, I hope we all know, is Jesus. What does the Bible teach us about Jesus? Who is he? Where did he come from? And what did he do? Now, I hope you know, and I hope this is just instinctively known, that it would be foolish to think that in one sermon alone that I could unpack everything the Bible says about Jesus and everything that Jesus taught. Would you nod with me like this? You understand that. That is much longer or much more than just one sermon. Honestly, I will tell you this. Because we are a Christ-centered church, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings about Jesus um, in in the Bible are covered in every single sermon preached here at New Life. I hope you know that. We talk about Jesus every week. But what I hope to do today is I want to unpack much of what makes up our core understanding, our core teaching in the Bible about Jesus. So I also want to let you know that uh, this sermon today, I am going to, again, like the first sermon of the series, give you a tidal wave of scriptures. You can't talk about Jesus and what the Bible teaches without going to the Bible and studying what it says. So uh, I'm just giving you a heads up. It will be a challenge for you, again, to keep up. If you're going to flip to every verse that I'm going to give you tonight, it's, it's going to go too fast probably. That's why you have the app, every scripture that I'm going to share, every point that I'm going to share, every point I'm going to try to make is represented in the app and you can go back and you can look, you can follow along you can go back and and you can reference it later so I'd rather just really focus and listen and not try to write everything down or type it in it's all there and you're not going to miss any of it now talking about Jesus let me just say for starters Jesus has been prophesied about from the earliest pages of the Bible and I don't know if you realize that that or not but Jesus shows up all the way back in the book of Genesis last week we studied about sin and the problem and and how sin, how the devil tempted Eve and both Adam and Eve, they ate from the fruit that God told them not to eat from and sin had been introduced into the world. And since that moment, we read that God has spoken of the one who is to come. There is a cure that is established. The, the, The beginnings of the cure are stated right there in the beginning in the book of Genesis where where God told Satan in chapter three, that the one who is going to come, Satan, he will crush you. That's in Genesis 3.16. That this one who is to come, he's not named Jesus yet, but this one who's going to come, he's going to crush you. And oh, Satan, you're going to try to fight back. You're, you're going to try to do something. But let me just tell you, he will crush you. It's one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible where God announces in the beginning, you're not going to win, Satan. I've got the cure. This one that's going to come that he's being referred to is it, he fulfills the pages of prophecy all throughout the Old Testament. There is this expectancy that we read about in the Old Testament that the Jewish peoples had that they said one day God is going to send the chosen one, the anointed one, the one that's going to come and, and fix everything. You see that clearly in, throughout the Old Testament. 
But it's in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, that Jesus comes bursting onto the scene when the angel of the Lord made the great announcement about the coming of Jesus. In fact, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel says this to Joseph, who would be the earthly father of Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and then what? You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Right here in this opening encounter of this angel and Joseph, we learn his name, his name is gonna be Jesus, and we have some kind of understanding of Jesus' supreme mission, which is to what? Save his people from their sins. So let's just talk about this for just a minute, because this is foundational of understanding exactly what is it that we believe about Jesus and understanding his name and understanding his, his mission. Jesus, the name Jesus, is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name, Joshua. Did you know that? Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name, Joshua. So obviously Jesus was a Jewish person. They spoke Hebrew. And so the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. So there is this word. His name is Joshua or Yeshua. That's how it would have been heard. Now, how many of you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Did everybody see that movie? What an incredible movie. Mel Gibson created it. But do you know that whole movie was filmed, the entire dialogue was filmed in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, and Latin. Okay, do you know that? With English subtitles. Now, how many of you found that just annoying? How many actually appreciated it? How many of you don't remember? Okay, anyway. So, you know, Mel Gibson, he wasn't even sure he wanted to do it that way, but he got convinced because they wanted this movie to be as authentic as possible, and they wanted the words that came out of the actor's mouth to sound as close to what it would have sounded like back in Jesus' day. And so, in that movie, he's not called Jesus, he's called what? Yeshua. Let, let me show you an example. Watch this. Jesus' name. That's how they pronounce it in the movie, and that's how it would have been understood. Joshua, Yeshua, it means Jehovah is salvation. The, the Greek equivalent, Jesus, means Savior. That's what these names mean. So what does it mean then when we read in the scriptures that Jesus is called the Christ or Messiah? That title, Christ or Messiah, it just means anointed one. So if you put these things together, anointed one, it designates that Jesus is the fulfiller of the, of the prophecies. He is the messianic hope of the Jews that they are waiting for, the, the Messiah. The name Jesus Christ means that this Messiah, this anointed one, is the one who comes to earth to save mankind from their sins, to save the lost. 
So when the angel says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save mankind. He will save the lost, save them from their sins. Boy, I tell you, that is a loaded statement when you spend some time unpacking it. So who is exactly is this Jesus? Who is the Messiah? As you read through the four Gospels, you're going to see that a lot of people in the Gospels try to identify who Jesus was. There were some who saw him simply as Joseph and Mary's kid. And you see this in Scripture. When Jesus travels to his hometown, they refer to him like, hey, isn't that, isn't that Joseph and Mary's kid? There's some people who identified him that way. There were others who called him a deceiver. You know, the religious leaders of the day, they referred to Jesus as a deceiver. Others referred to him as a prophet. They called him that. There were others, and this even continues to this very day, who say, you know, Jesus was just a man. Now, albeit probably a good man who lived a really good life, but still just a man. Have you ever heard anybody say that in their descriptions about Jesus? He's just a man. Well, they said that in the Bible days as well. Who is Jesus? What does the Bible teach us about his identity? What did Jesus say about himself? What did the apostles say about Jesus? You know, the ones that knew him the best. They traveled with him every single day. What did they say about Jesus? Let me share with you just a few things that those people said about Jesus. Take John the Baptist, one of the earliest people that we encounter in the New Testament. Take John the Baptist. What did he say about Jesus? Well, John the Baptist called Jesus the Son of God. John 1.34 says this. This is John. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. What about Mark? What, what did Mark say about Jesus. Well, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. How about Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, traveling companions? Peter, the one who Jesus said, you are the rock. What did he say about Jesus? Well, in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter said this, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How about Paul, the Apostle Paul? You know, the one who wrote much of the New Testament. You know what he said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4? He says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. How about the angel Gabriel? Do you know that he said that Jesus was God's son? Luke chapter 1, verse 35. So the Holy One to be born would be called the Son of God. Do you know the demons, they know who Jesus was too. Do you know the demons even called him the son of God? There's this one time we read about in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus confronts these demons and they're like, what do you want with us? You know what they said? Son of God, they shouted. Demons knew who he was. Jesus himself seems to clearly identify himself. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, he's standing before the chief priest before they send him to the cross. And, and the high priest asked him in verse 61, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Because that's what people were saying he was. And what did Jesus say? I am. Well, that's loaded, to be honest with you. We won't get into that today, but that's loaded, if you know what I mean. All of that combined probably can't top what God himself said about Jesus. Right after Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, says a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Foundationally, what must be clearly understood 
for our faith today is that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you know what this means? This means that Jesus is divine. He is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. This is what this means. He's a son of God, from God. He's a part of God. He is divine. Now, we're not diving very deep tonight um, into the doctrine of the Trinity. That, that's not my intentions tonight. You know, the, the teaching of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how they all work together. But in discussing Jesus as a son of God and being divine, it points to part of the Trinity in that, that Jesus is equal to God, and at the same time, distinct from God. It's very un important to understand. Jesus is equal to God, and he's also distinct from God. Jesus is equal to God. Why is he equal to God? It's because he can do the same things that God can do. That's why he's equal to God. For example, Jesus has the power to create. Now, throughout the Bible, this was a, a power exclusively for God. This is attributed to him. He is the creator. Yet, in many passages of Scripture... Jesus seems to have that same power to create. Jesus also has the power to forgive sins. Now, in the Bible, this is an exclusive power of God. Yet Jesus states time and time again that he has the authority and the power to forgive sins and to show everybody the truth of this, he will heal somebody. He will say, just so you know that I do have the authority to forgive sins, stand up and walk. How many times do you see that in the New Testament? Jesus is the proper object of our worship. You know, the Bible makes very clear, only God should be worshiped. I mean, this goes back to the very top list of the Ten Commandments, you know? But Jesus is also given that honor by God himself. You know, Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, he says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may um, honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is equal to God. Why? Because he can do all the things that God can do. But, but while Jesus is also equal to God, he's also this. He is distinct from God at the same time. Uh, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that speak to the distinctiveness of Jesus. Perhaps uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5 probably spells it out very clearly. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this passage talks about in the beginning. We're talking about before creation. In the beginning. Before it was what? There was the word. And the word was what? Word was with God. The word was God. I mean, this is a direct reference to Jesus being distinctive from God because you get down to verse 14, it says this, the word became flesh. So this that had been around since before the creation came, became flesh. And he, God, made his dwelling among us is a form of a man, it's Jesus. And this is, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, it can get a little technical, but it's not supposed to be confusing. The truth is that Jesus is equal with God. At the same time, he's distinct from God. Jesus is not a mere man. I hope you guys know that. He's not a mere man, but he was human in every way. But he was not a mere man. He is the son 
of God. He came to this earth and he lived a few years as a man, but he was victorious in the resurrection after his death on the cross. He's not just a mere God, man. He's God in the flesh. Jesus even said this in John chapter 10, verse 25. He says, the works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. I hope this starts to lay a, a very clear foundation, an understanding of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. Now, I want us to turn our attention to understanding specifically as to what Jesus has done for us. So is Jesus the Son of God, but what did he do? Why did he come? I want to just real quickly give you four reasons why Jesus came. And these four reasons lay the foundation of our understanding, our doctrine of, of Jesus. Why did he come? Well, number one, Jesus came to be our Savior. Jesus came to be our Savior. Again, what did the angel say to Joseph? He will save his people from their sins. What did the angels announce to the shepherds who were watching their fields by night? They said, a Savior has been born unto you. Even Jesus clearly summarizes his role as a Savior when he came. In Luke chapter 19, 10, what did he say? For the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save the lost. In the Bible, there is this constant, unchanging understanding of why Jesus came. Paul wrote about it in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Friends, if you don't remember anything else from this sermon today, I hope you will remember this. Jesus came to be our Savior. Sin has so infected the world, like we studied last week, it created a separation between us and God, but Jesus is the cure for sin. There is not a more important truth that this world needs to know than that one right there. That Jesus came to save the lost. Sin is a problem. It separates us from God. Jesus is the cure. He is the Savior. Have you ever heard of a missionary by the name of William R. Hotchkiss before? Is that a name that you are familiar with? He was born in the year 1873, and he's a well-known missionary who spent 40 years of his life um, trying to reach the people of Africa. You, actually, you can read about his life in the book that he wrote called Then and Now in Kenya Colony. And I haven't read the whole thing, but the parts I've read are just absolutely fascinating. In that book, he shares this one account of how he had searched for so long to try to find a way to communicate to these native people that he was working with of what it means to have a savior, the idea of a savior. Can you imagine how challenging that would be to try to communicate the most fundamental truth of your faith to people, but you don't know the language and you don't know the culture and you're trying to communicate, Jesus loves you and Jesus saves you and you can't find the words. That's his story. He says, one day there was this great commotion in the village that he was working with. There was a crowd that had assembled, and when he went out to 
you know, just to search what's going on, what's all the commotion about. There was a man from the village who was bleeding and he was torn up. You see, he had been in a tiger attack, which was a common thing where they were in Kenya. And he was telling the story of what happened to him, that he was attacked by this tiger and he knew he was going to die. But then all of a sudden, a guy jumped out and distracted the tiger, scared it off, and it ran away. And he, the way he referred to this man, he saved me. And right then, Mr. Hoskins goes, that's the word. That's the word I've been looking for. And he wrote it down. He's like, this is what I've been trying to convey this whole time. The concept of this guy came in and saved you from the tiger. And the next time he got the opportunity to teach, he taught about Jesus Christ and the saving work on the cross. And he used that word and the light bulbs went off. And after he was done teaching, the people in the village came to him and said, so that's what you've been trying to tell us this whole time, that, that Jesus saved us, he saved us from our sins, and he saved us from the devil. That's what you've been trying to say all of these many moons is what they told him. And then he summarizes that story. He says this. This is powerful, y'all. I'm just going to read it right from his book. He says, I have dwelt many years practically alone in Africa. I have been 30 times stricken with fever, three times attacked by lions, and several times by rhinoceroses, a number of times ambushed by natives. For 14 months, I never saw a piece of bread. But let me say to you, I would gladly go through the whole thing again if I could have the joy again bringing the word Savior and flashing it into the darkness that enveloped another tribe in Central Africa. Well, I'm inspired by that. The joy of finally being able to express the most important truth in the world. Jesus is our Savior. Titus 3 verse 4 says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. But you know what else he is? Jesus, number two, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus came to be our Lord. And this, my friends, is very different than our Savior. On the day of Pentecost, this is a few days after Jesus had ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit came on the apostles, and they went and they preached, and that was the day that 3,000 people got saved and the church was started. This is the day I'm talking about. Peter looked out at the crowd, and he said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He said, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. This God made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now think about that. Lord and Messiah, Lord and the anointed one. Paul declared this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. What he said? If you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Then what does that mean? What does that mean to make Jesus is Lord? That's not language that's uncommon around here. We talk about it all the time. The word Lord in the New Testament is kind of the same word as master. Can you refer to it like this? If somebody is the, the head of the house or the master of the house, that's that idea of Lord. And the person who's over the house needs to be obeyed. It's their rules. You come under the authority 
of the head of the house. That's this concept of this word, Lord. And so we've looked at two words, Savior and Lord. How are they different? Think about it this way. The term Savior, Jesus is our Savior, it indicates what Christ has done and what he is doing for us, the believer. The word Lord reflects more of what the believer should be doing for Christ, his Savior. That's kind of the two differences. He's our Savior. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. But he's also Lord. We're going to follow and we're going to obey him with everything we've got. Why? It's because he reached down out of heaven and he got a hold of me and he pulled me from the gates of hell. That's why. That's why I'm going to serve him as my Lord. That's why I'm going to obey him because he saved me. Jesus challenged the people one day in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when he said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? I mean, that, that's, that's what Jesus said. This whole concept of Lord. Why are you calling me Lord if you're not going to do what I say, if you're not going to follow me? And for me, I want you to know my heart on this. I, I think that this is a dangerous position the church has gotten itself into in America these days. We want all the benefits of a Savior without any of the commitment to the Lord. We want all the gains of eternity without any of the sacrifices of the here and now. And I am weary. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice sometimes, but I am weary of what I see Christians finding acceptable today, which is clearly inconsistent with saying Jesus is the Lord of my life. It's clearly inconsistent. I get that sixth feeling to my stomach, you know, kind of like the, oh, that feeling, whatever that is. I get that from time to time when I hear these, and my word for them, these progressive preachers who spout out lie after lie to their congregations. When they tell them God is love and Jesus saves, but then in the very same breath, they affirm all kinds of lifestyles and choices that the Lord absolutely does not endorse. I've been saddened recently by the discovery that a minister that I've looked up to for a long time um, has turned his back on the true gospel and is now endorsing the lies of progressive Christianity. Um, in a recent sermon of his that I was listening to, he told his church this. He said, friends, what we got to do today is we have to reimagine God. And we have to reinterpret the Bible to reflect the age that we're living in. And every culture throughout time has done this. They've reimagined God. They've reinterpreted the scriptures based on the society they were living in. Can I tell you what that's code for? That's code for, I don't agree with the parts of the Bible that tell me I'm sinning, so I'm going to reimagine, I'm going to reinterpret the scriptures to my liking so that I can have a Savior while keeping me as Lord. That's all that is. Matthew 7, 21 says, not everyone, this is Jesus' words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, why did Jesus come? He came to be our Savior, and he came to be our Lord. There's two other reasons. Well, there's more than two more reasons, but I'm going to give you two more tonight. 
Jesus came to be our mediator. This is a really foundational truth about the role of Jesus. The term mediator is not a hard one to understand. It's a go-between between two parties or two people. Most often today, a mediator will come in when like two parties have become hostile towards each other and they can't seem to come together. Or you have two uh, businesses or individuals that are so far apart that they just can't seem to come together. And what a mediator will do will help them bring agreement and harmony. That's his concept of a mediator. And the Bible speaks of Jesus in the exact same way. The Bible teaches that an individual, you and me, all of us, we are, because of our sin, alienated from God without any hope at all. In other words, our sin puts God way over there, and it puts us way over there. We are the two parties that are, cannot come together unless something changes. We need somebody to help us come back together with God. There's a word that the Bible uses that we don't use very much anymore, but the word is enmity. Enmity, and you find it several places in Scripture, and it really speaks of a hostility between two. And in this case, a hostility between us and God, and that's how we have to understand it. Sin has created a hostile environment, a hostility between us and God. Why? It's because God is what? He is holy. He is without sin. He's separated from, but what are we? We are sinful people. That puts God over there, and it puts us way over there. Something had to come. Someone had to come. So God and man are far apart because of our sin. And so if you look at 1 Timothy 2.5, it clearly speaks of Jesus as a mediator. It says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's what Jesus did. He ransomed himself. I will take your place. I will take your penalty to myself. I'm going to ransom. I'm going to, you know, there's a lot of words we attach, but that's the idea. Jesus for us. There's more that could be said, but Jesus is our mediator. Through the cross, he bridged the gap between God and man. And that's why, honestly, friends, that little personal evangelism picture between the cross, between two canyons is so stinking effective. You can draw it on a napkin. You can talk to anybody about it. You just create this cliff, this canyon. And that canyon represents your, your death and your sin, eternity without God. And on one side of the canyon is God and the other side is you. And this is an impossible canyon to cross on your own. And Jesus came and did what? He died on the cross and that created for us what? A bridge. That made it possible for man to come over and join God on the holy side, the forgiven side, the washed by the blood of Jesus side. That even though I screwed up my life, Jesus, and they still love me and they still want me to be in heaven for eternity. It's the forgiveness side of this. He is our mediator. And finally, Jesus came to be our king. Jesus came to be our king. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as a king. The prophets of the Old Testament, they spoke of a day when a righteous branch would come out of the line of David. We read about that in several places, Jeremiah, Zechariah. And this righteous branch would be Jesus. In fact, even the angel Gabriel, when he told Mary that she's gonna be a mom, in Luke chapter one, verse 32, listen to what he says to her. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne 
of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. The kingdom will never come to an end. There's this language, there's this understanding. Jesus is going to be a king. Jesus even claimed to be a king. You remember when he was standing uh, on a trial and he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? Remember this question? Jesus says, yes. Luke chapter 23, verse three, yes. It's exactly how you say it is. Except he qualified it. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus told Pilate. Second Peter chapter one, verse 11 says, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's this kingdom talk. You don't talk about kingdom talk unless you have a king. And so Jesus is often referred to as a king. Perhaps maybe even the most vivid picture of Jesus as a king is found in the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12 says this. His eyes are like a blazing fire. We're talking about Jesus here. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on a white horse, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written on it. Say it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, we could say more. I told you it's gonna take more than one sermon. Can I ask you this question before we depart tonight? Is Jesus your savior? I wonder how many of you need to confront yourself with that question. Is Jesus your savior? How many else of us need to confront ourselves with this? Is he your Lord? Or have you fallen into the trap of thinking you can have a savior and you still be the Lord of your own life? It doesn't work that way. Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? He is our mediator. Have you taken advantage of his services, bringing you and God together? Finally, I just ask you this. Is Jesus your king? Only you can answer those questions. And I want you to know that I'm here and would love to visit with any of you before you go home today about those very things. You realize, I believe this with all my heart, that you could walk into this room today, you could be watching this online right now, completely lost in your sins. You can walk out of this room saved and sanctified. I believe salvation can happen like that. Now becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus, well, you'll spend the rest of your life doing that with lots of ups and downs along the way. But is Jesus your savior? Is he your Lord? Has he mediated between you and God and brought you guys together? Is he your king? Dear Lord, I just thank you for being all of those things. Lord, I thank you that you created something brand new out of something old. That Lord, you took our brokenness our sin, our lost state, and you redeemed it. 
so that we could be a new creation, something brand new. Lord, only you could do that. And Lord, we'll forever be indebted to you for that. So Lord, we acknowledge today that you are our Savior. But Lord, let us not walk out of here thinking that we're Lord. No, you are the Lord. Lord, help us to obey, follow you. And Lord, until we have no more air in our lips, may we proclaim that you are the King. And Lord, we cannot wait until this kingdom that we're a part of here on earth, the church, becomes the eternal kingdom in heaven. Lord, we love you. Help us to see clearly that which is of you and that which is of not. In Jesus' name, amen.